How Serious a Threat is Cyber Warfare? David Sanger will join us to talk about the perfect weapon, war, sabotage, and fear in the cyber age. What terrible things took place on New York City's Blackwell's Island? Stacey Horn will be here to talk about her new book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, our critics Dwight Garner, Paul Siegel, and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Washington is my colleague David Sanger. He is the national security correspondent for The Times and the author of a new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. David, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Pamela. Let's start and talk a little bit about your day job. What do you do as the national security correspondent? What falls under that umbrella? Well, we have a a big team that covers national security uh, in The Times Bureau, as you would expect. And in in the past, I've been uh, White House correspondent, chief Washington correspondent, and so forth. So we all specialize a bit. And um, starting about a decade ago, I began pressing to get us more into the cyber age. So in addition to the usual foreign policy and national security issues that I covered, nuclear proliferation, North Korea, Iran, and so forth, I've also sort of developed a a bit of a subspecialty that has come to dominate a a good deal of my daily life in covering the growth of cyber conflict uh, among nations, which uh, has really emerged in the past few years as the dominant way that countries try to undercut each other without actually going to war. All right. So you just used a word cyber conflict, and then people also use the word cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, electronic sabotage. What do all these things, you know, how do they differ? Or is this all on the same kind of general turf? Well, it's a great question because they they do differ considerably. First of all, cyber is used by all kinds of groups, not just states. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of criminal cyber activity just to, you know, get your credit card numbers or clean money out of your bank account. There's a lot of just cyber harassment. There's a lot of espionage that takes place over uh, using cyber means. It's basically what you used to call wiretapping to tap into a phone conversation has now spread to cyberspace so that people can look at your email traffic. They can look at your electronic messaging and so forth. I don't use the word cyber war loosely because it suggests two countries that are literally at war with each other. And what's fascinating about the cyber age is that it has allowed countries to go after each other in a short of war manner, which is to say, to begin to undercut each other, to attack their facilities, to undercut their institutions without actually conducting what people would traditionally consider an act of war. So let me just give you two examples. The United States and Israel together attacked Iran's nuclear facilities back starting in the late Bush administration and well into the Obama administration using cyber means to go in and blow up the centrifuges that produced uranium. Now, if we had dropped bombs on that facility, if we had sent in saboteurs to that facility, we would probably certainly call it an act of war or at least an act of sabotage. It's unclear when you do it using a cyber weapon 
whether or not it really is an act of war. What the Russians did in the election in 2016 was clearly short of war, mm-hmm. but yet it was a pretty aggressive act to go into another country's voting system. And yet it kind of seems like the, this idea of cyber warfare as kind of being one nation against the other is analogous to like a 19th century version of field battle with sort of soldiers lined up neatly on either side of a, of a field. I mean, it, it it is more complicated than that generally, isn't it's it? It's far like more the, complicated, especially because most of the soldiers in a cyber battle are irregulars, which is to say there are frequently patriotic hackers, you know, Russians who believe that the United States is evil and that the the Russian Federation needs to restore its past glory, but they're not necessarily working directly for the Russian military. The Chinese, on the other hand, have military units that work for the People's Liberation Army that have hacked into American computers to steal industrial secrets, the plans for the F-35 the records out of the Office of Personnel Management on 22 million Americans who hold security clearances. And in those cases, many of those are actually PLA officers. So it's all over the map. So this is going to complicate it more. But building on that, I'm assuming that it's not like cyber warfare is in its own kind of silo separate from other issues and forms of of national security and threats like nuclear weapons, but that this is all connected. You know, With the development of every new weapon in history, people usually start by assuming that it will take place separate and apart from everything else. So when the airplane was first invented and the Wright brothers first showed the military flyer to generals up on a field in College Park, Maryland, the initial thought was, well, this would be completely separate from ordinary warfare. And Initially, there were in World War One, you know, the Red Baron and, you know, other other battles in the air. But it didn't take very long for military aircraft to be integrated with every other form of warfare. And now when we think of air attacks, you're thinking of it as something that's synchronized with naval activity or ground invasions and so forth. Sometimes, but rarely air alone. Cyber is the same thing. The U.S. military is is integrating it through the the newly elevated U.S. Cyber Command into every form of warfare and war plan that we have. So how does our government deal with cybersecurity where you have the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Department of Defense? Like, where does it fall? And if it is everywhere, is it coordinated among the various parts of the government in our defense system? It's a great question. And the answer is no, it's not. It's a complete mess. There is, uh, as I suggested, a U.S. cyber command, but most of the talent for the offensive cyber activity the United States does and some of the defensive is inside the National Security Agency, which is one of the largest of the, of the intelligence agencies. It's got tens of thousands of people up at uh, Fort Meade uh, in Maryland and then around uh, around the world. And they're the ones who do the covert cyber activity, including Mm -hmm. the attacks on Iran. And the book describes a covert program the United States had to try to go after North Korea's missiles. It's a story that we broke in the Times uh, last year. So that part is uncoordinated. And then cyber defense of the U.S. is supposed to be the job of the Department of Homeland Security the same people who are dealing with all of the immigration issues and everything else. And to make this even worse, for years, the White House has had a 
cybersecurity coordinator who was supposed to begin to make sense of all this, a very high-level NSC official. When John Bolton came in a few months ago as the um, new national security advisor, he not only got rid of the two people who knew the most about cyber high up in the White House, but he eliminated the job of cybersecurity coordinator. Uh, Clearly, he must believe that the government was over-coordinated in this regard. Right. Uh, But what was his stated rationale for making that decision? There wasn't much of a stated rationale other than that cyber is part of everything that we do, so we will deal with it in everything else. But that means that if everyone's responsible for it, no one's really responsible for it. And we know key decisions that the White House had to go make. For example, there was a fairly secret White House counsel under the Obama and Bush administrations that made the decisions about what cyber vulnerabilities the intelligence agencies and the military would be able to keep secret and hold for themselves to make cyber weapons and which ones they should go report to Microsoft and Google and everybody else so that they could patch their systems and protect the rest of us. A very, very big decision. It's not even clear that that council still exists. Hmm. So when people think of, when Americans think of our own government system and all of these agencies and departments under any administration, they normally think of a kind of slow and congested bureaucracy, not necessarily the most high-tech in its habits or systems. I mean, is cybersecurity an exception to this generally sort of sclerotic system, or are we kind of technologically behind in terms of, of our own security? Well, the oddity is that we are way ahead in cyber offense, or I'm mm-hmm. sorry, we are ahead in cyber offense. I would say the Chinese and the Russians are coming up behind us very quickly, and to a lesser degree, the Iranians and the North Koreans. But we're wildly behind in cyber defense. Part of that is because of the bureaucracy problem that you suggest. Those security files held by the Office of Personnel Management, they were, this is the most sensitive material you could have about people, not just their names and social security numbers, but their medical records, their financial records, their relationships, who the foreigners are that they know, very complex background data. None of it was encrypted in the OPM system. Nobody paid attention to the fact that the most sensitive data that we had on federal employees and contractors was not only in the hands of an agency that didn't guard them the way intelligence agencies of the Pentagon would, but that they were stored in empty computer space at the Department of the Interior, you know, alongside bison migration in uh, Yellowstone, things like that. So it was very easy for the Chinese to come in and clear it out. In fact, as I report in the book, the Chinese, when they stole the material, encrypted it, which the U.S. should have done, so that we wouldn't see it as it was departing the U.S. system and making its way back to Beijing. It's another thing that kind of keeps us behind, not only the, the, the bureaucracy, but in terms of cyber defense, but also the fact that a lot of our systems are private as opposed to being part of the government? Absolutely. That's the second big factor here. So you think about the critical infrastructure that we talk about protecting, utilities, um, cell phone networks, financial markets. Every one of those belongs, by and large, to private companies, most of whom do not want the U.S. government mucking around in their systems by doing the defense of their systems inside their own networks. They don't want the government there. They certainly don't want the IRS there. They don't want regulators there. 
And even when it comes to election systems, which obviously are in the hands of the states, the individual states, they did not want to be declared critical infrastructure in 2016 or, or the secretaries of state in many states did not because they feared it would be the beginning of a government takeover of the election system, something that since uh, the days of the founders has always been in the hands of, of the states themselves, not the federal government. The other thing that I imagine would differentiate us from other countries in terms of cyber defense systems is our national concern about privacy, which is always an issue here, maybe more so in the EU. But I imagine not all of our enemies share those concerns. And is that does that jeopardize us? Well, it certainly means that we're seeing a balkanization of the Internet. So if you go to China these days, Google doesn't operate. They basically left China. Instead of Facebook, there is a Chinese equivalent of Facebook. Apple has been required to take all of the data that you save up to the iCloud. And if it's in China, put it on a Chinese version of the iCloud that the state can get into. So in each of those cases, and similar, similarly in Russia, the state has declared that nothing can be off limits to the government. Mm-hmm. And obviously, they're not going to sit around and wait to get warrants, whereas we will. But we also have differences with the Europeans. And I tell a story in the book about uh, what happened right after the awful terrorist attacks in uh, Paris, the one that took place at the Bacalan Theater and so forth. So a number of the terrorists were killed. So a couple were, were captured later on. And the French police immediately got the help of Facebook to identify who they were mm-hmm. and to figure out who their friends were. And from that and associating it with phone numbers, the police were able to go do these big raids in Belgium where they arrested and killed a number of the other members of the terror cells before they could conduct another attack, which was when it looked as if some were planned. Mm-hmm. Well, under the new European privacy laws, Facebook no longer is permitted to keep some of the information that they ended up turning over to the police that would that enabled the police to go find the terrorists. So there is this built-in conflict between the security side of states that want to use these tools to go hunt down terrorists or for purposes of domestic repression in the case of the Chinese and those who want to protect the privacy of the users. What are the biggest threats and who are the biggest threats right now to our own security in terms of of cyber terrorism and cyber warfare? Well, cyber terrorism, there hasn't been a whole lot of. There's been ransomware, which has mostly been criminal activity. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things is that terror groups have not made effective use of cyber as a weapon. They have made effective use of cyber for recruitment. Mm -hmm. And there's a section of the book in which I describe why it was so difficult and why the uh, U.S. Cyber Command did so poorly going after ISIS, which was using cyber means to recruit new members around the world. And one of the reasons was that it was so easy for these terror groups to take their recruiting material and put it in the cloud all around the world. So we'd go wipe out a network. You know, the U.S. government would go in and do this and a project called Project Ares, which was run out of U.S. Central Command, but with the help of a number of America's 6,000-plus cyber warriors in the, in the military. 
And a week later, the same material would show up again on the web because the terrorists had just stored it in different places. Mm -hmm. And so it really explained why this tool sometimes is, is not as useful. But while we haven't seen a lot of cyber terrorism, we certainly have seen the Russians think out ahead of how they could disrupt our institutions without causing that big cyber Pearl Harbor attack that everybody was worried about, you know, where all the electricity goes off from Boston to Washington. And part of the argument of the book is that we got in our own way by focusing on the big cyber attack, the Pearl Mm -hmm. Harbor attack, that we were thinking so much about the mass use of cyber to turn off the the electric grid or the cell phone network that we missed the signs that the Russians were using this in much more subtle ways. And we shouldn't have missed it because if you go to Ukraine, as I did for some of the reporting in the book, and you look at what the Russians have done there, they used Ukraine as the testing ground for every single thing they did in the United States. How exactly did they do that? Well, the the chapter in the book is called uh, Putin's Petri Dish. And Mm -hmm. what they did was experiment. So, for example, they did turn off the power in two parts of Ukraine remotely. So you have this picture of, of the power operators in Ukraine sitting in their control room, moving their mice and keyboards around and discovering that it was no longer connected to their system. They were watching a remote operator switch off several hundred thousand users from the electric grid and there was nothing they could do about it. But the Russians didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. All of the propaganda, sort of Facebook kind of things that you saw in the election, they did in Ukraine first. They altered the reporting of the votes in the presidential election in Ukraine, and it got caught at the last minute just before the results were being announced on on television. It would have announced that the victor was a a pro-Russian candidate. What's interesting is that the broadcasters in Russia announced the false reports, even though the the broadcasters in the Ukraine had caught it and announced the correct results. So even, that should have been a warning sign to us. It was several years before the hack onto the into the U.S. elections. So we know about all of the propaganda that took place on, on social media. Is there a threat of actual manipulation of our electoral system? So fortunately, our voting machines are so old, decrepit, disconnected from the Internet that it would be very hard to actually alter the vote. But there are a couple of vulnerabilities. One of them is that the registration systems that we use, that most most states use and most local governments use, are connected to the Internet so that you could sit at home at your computer and register to vote. And then, of course, you show up at the, at the polling place. Well, if somebody could get into that system, which wouldn't be that hard, and in fact, the Russians did attempt this in Illinois and Arizona and several other states, and could manipulate that data, then, Pamela, you could show up wherever you're voting, and they would look at your registration and say, but two months ago, you indicated that you had just moved to Arizona. So why are you voting here in New York? Mm. And that could cause a lot of chaos. And that's one big vulnerability. Another big vulnerability is just what they did in Ukraine. When all these votes are put together, they are then tallied and given through the Associated Press up to what you hear on television 
as you're watching on election night. And if you could get into that central computing system, you could announce false results. While it might ultimately get sorted out in a few days or a few weeks, it would certainly cause chaos because people would wonder whether the vote was manipulated after it was elected after the election day happened. And that this was all President Obama's fear. This explains why, as I described in the, in the book, after I went back and interviewed many people who had been in the Obama administration, why he didn't strike back at Putin before election day. Because he was fearful that Putin was deep enough into the election system that he could retaliate by actually trying to go alter registrations, votes, cause chaos on the day of the election. So since they figured that Hillary Clinton would win, their thought was, we'll deal with Putin afterwards and mm. and, and punish him then. Right. Well, of course, things didn't quite work out that way. How worried should we be about the upcoming midterm elections? I think that our worry should be that people will find new and different vulnerabilities. I don't think that we're necessarily as vulnerable to exactly what was done in 2016, but that doesn't mean that people are not thinking of evolving ways to go influence the election. And that's the remarkable thing about cyber, and it's one of the reasons that you know, arms control treaties in the traditional way wouldn't work, because the technology evolves so quickly that you can't think of all of the different uses to go out and try to get agreement to, to prohibit. So I know that earlier you said cyber terrorism isn't a huge concern relative to, to cyber warfare, or at least it hasn't been used up till now. But there's this other little book out out there right now by a former president and a best-selling author called The President is Missing yes. by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. Have you read that book? I, I haven't yet. I've read some pieces of it. I've read some of the, the cyber parts. I've, I've put it aside for my summer reading. I discovered that you can write a book and you can promote a book, but you can't do both of those while you're reading other books. Ah. So that's my that's my summer. <laughs> okay. So so in that book, and I don't think it's giving too much away, but the kind of the, the, the bad guy is a cyber terrorist gang, international, intranational gang of, of sort of outliers from a n- number of nations. And they create something, this program that they call Dark Ages, which sort of systematically takes down the entire Internet in the U.S., I mean, I, again, you haven't read the book, and I don't want to give too much away, but is that a realistic threat? I mean, is it? Is it? can somebody just sort of shut it down? You know, the Internet is a big, diverse place, and shutting all of it down would be pretty difficult. And there's a lot of redundancy built into the system. But the fact of the matter is that since no one designed this system, and certainly no one designed it with security in mind, that uh, you could certainly shut down big parts of it. I'll give you one vulnerability I describe at, at some detail in, uh, in the book. We talk about the cloud and the internet as if it's all up you know, in space somewhere. But the fact of the matter is that more than 90% of our uh, internet traffic internationally runs across 150 or so undersea cables. And they come up at a very small number of places in the United States where these cables basically come to shore. And we are extraordinarily vulnerable to somebody cutting that off. And Mm -hmm. if they did that, yes, you could bring down the entire internet 
because it couldn't communicate with the rest of the outside world. So that's just like a mechanical thing. It's a mechanic. It would be if you were looking for the fastest way to do what is described in the Clinton Patterson novel, it would actually be a physical cut of the of the cables that run the internet. And it's interesting because we've now seen after the Snowden affair a few years ago where American companies were quite concerned that the government was tapping into the cables they were using, which are the same cables that carry telephone traffic and everything else. They have begun laying, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, begun laying their own undersea cable around the world mm. so that they have their own dedicated lines. I mean, it's you can imagine this is a wildly expensive project, but they have huge amounts of, of, of money. So for them... This is their form of security. So of all of the crazy high-tech hacking techniques that are out there, the thing that could bring us down is, is essentially a wire cutter that would... Yes. And so let me, let me add to your nighttime fears on this. The United States has seen Russian submarines, which have big wire cutters on them, scoping out the undersea cables and their pathways. Many of these pathways are well known. You can go on the on the web and see where the cables are because many of them are along known paths that have been used for you know 150 years since we first since Alexander Graham Bell first started, you know, laying telephone cable. All right, since you brought up nighttime fears, knowing everything that you know from your day job as a national security correspondent for the Times and having written this book, what is it that keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night, Pamela? are the more subtle uses of cyber. If somebody tried to turn off the entire East Coast, I think there's a pretty good chance there would be a military response. So we have a way of deterring that. We haven't figured out the deterrence for people who come in to manipulate data, people who come in to do what the Russians tried to do in the election hack, people who would come in to alter medical data. Supposing you got into the military's database system and changed everybody's blood type. Supposing you got into medical systems and changed people's blood type. You can imagine the kind of death and destruction and subtle problems that could take place in that in that case. All right. Well, with someone with security in his job title, you're making me feel very insecure and vulnerable. But uh, now I have something new to worry about. That's right. Why, why <laughs> not add to your summer fears? But, you know, at the end of the day in this book, I say that, you know, this is a system that human beings designed, and therefore it should be a system that human beings can control, not control entirely. You know, if you, if you want to end all of the risk, then, you know, throw away every electronic device you have and move to a log cabin in the middle of the woods in Montana and, you know, just heat it using a wood stove. We're not going to do that. So we're going to have to learn how to go manage the risk. One way we're going to have to do that is by setting some international norms about what's off limits. And so if you and I sat down to come up with a list, you know, I think we could probably do it pretty quickly. You know, election systems should be off limits. Attacking hospitals, attacking emergency service workers, attacking emergency communications. The problem would be that if you circulated that list inside the U.S. government right now, I can tell you the intelligence agencies would come out and say, well, wait a minute. 
we worked on manipulating elections in Italy in the 40s, in Latin America in the 50s and the 60s. Do we really want to promise that we will never again mess with another nation's elections? And by the way, we had a secret program to take down all of Iran's electric grid. It's described in the book. It was called Nitro Zeus. It would have been put into effect if we had gotten into a conflict with Iran before the 2015 uh, nuclear agreement was reached, the, the agreement that President Trump has since walked away from. And so I think many of uh, in our own security services would say, we don't want to sign up to those kind of restrictions. And what worries me the most is that we have not found a way to talk about these kind of trade-offs in cyber because so much around cyber is classified. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote The Perfect Weapon. This it was a problem under the Bush administration. This was a problem and a threat under the Obama administration. How on top of it is the Trump administration? Not especially. Uh, I think they were doing better their first year. I think now they've lost some of their focus. There are some scenes in the book in which I describe trying to talk with President Trump when he was a candidate about cyber threats. I quote for sort of a page what his response was. It was not especially reassuring. And then there's a scene in the book where President Trump calls me right after he met Vladimir Putin for the first time in Hamburg last summer. I was out there covering it for the Times to convince me that President Putin had told him that there was no way the Russians could have been responsible for the election hack because if they had attempted it, we never would have seen them. You know, I said to him, well, Mr. President, that's not the kind of hack this was. It was meant to be seen. They published the emails from the Democratic National Committee, from Podesta's uh, private email. But he wouldn't be argued with. He, uh, he wanted to take Putin's argument that the Russians were just too good to have gotten caught, so it couldn't have been them. Yeah, not, not exactly soothing either way. <laughs> yes. All right, David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. David Sanger is a national security correspondent for The Times and the author of a new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Stacey Horn joins us now to talk about her new book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Stacey, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So how did you get into this cheerful topic? I've always been into cheerful topics like this one. For whatever reason, whatever accident in my childhood, I'm drawn to morbid stories, but particularly stories that have been forgotten because I feel like 
an injustice has happened, and now mm-hmm. it's been compounded by being forgotten. So I want to resurrect these stories. So it's this island is not actually called Damnation Island in the book. It's the current day Roosevelt Island, then called Blackwell's Island. That's correct. What like how did that island come to be? It was inhabited by a family called Blackwell, and the city bought it because at the time Bellevue, which is now known primarily as a hospital, at the time did house the Lunatic Asylum, two penal institutions, the almshouse for the poor. And as a result, it was inhumane and crowded. Conditions were terrible. So buying Blackwell's Island was supposed to be a humane answer to Bellevue. And they they researched all the different institutions and they were going to build state-of-the-art institutions to replace what was at Bellevue and send these people to this beautiful island away from the stress and temptations of Manhattan and reform them or heal them, whichever that group required, and then send them back to Manhattan in better condition than when they left. And they, in this case, is the the government of New York City. Yes. So situate Roosevelt Island for us because there are a number of islands in the East River and most people outside of New York probably know that Manhattan is an island and there is Staten Island and there is Ellis Island, but there are these East River Islands. It will sits in the East River between Manhattan and Queens, and you can see it when you're driving up the east side of Manhattan. It's the one actually closest to most of the island of Manhattan. It's two miles long. I think it's 800 feet wide. And this is a natural island that was there. It wasn't sort of a filled in or anything like that. This was there, and it was owned by this family before. Yeah, and they had um, used it to live, and they had a bunch of fruit orchards, which is what also made it very appealing to the city of New York because it just looked so pastoral. And it also had granite quarries, which they planned to use to build all the institutions. And people that were convicted to the workhouse and to the penitentiary were the ones that built the institutions that they were housed in. Okay, so the city of New York buys the island from the Blackwell family in the 1830s. And yeah. what do they then establish there? First, they built a penitentiary, then a lunatic asylum, and it would be eventually followed by another penal institution called the workhouse. The penitentiary was for criminals uh, convicted of more serious crimes, short of murder, unless you were a woman. And if you're a woman and convicted of murder, you could have been sent to the penitentiary. The workhouse was for more minor crimes like intoxication, disorderly conduct, the Lunatic Asylum was for the what was then called the Lunatic Poor of Manhattan. The wealthy people in New York had private sanitariums to go to. And the almshouse for people who were homeless and poor, and then hospitals to serve these various populations. And the almshouse was also for the disabled. The disabled poor. Okay. That's the thing. Everything on Blackwell's Island was focused towards the poor. Even the penal institutions, which should have been more democratic. But what happened was, over time, it was discovered that the wealthy people were rarely sent to prison. I even found a warden who said in an annual report, you know, he said, I can't help but notice that you only send poor criminals to me and never the wealthy. And we know the wealthy commit crimes. So essentially, what's going on here? Where were they sent? They weren't sent anywhere for the most part. Mm -hmm. The women's prison... (laughs) Just like today. 
Well, exactly. That was one of the most depressing things about researching the book was learning that this has been going on for a very, very long time. And it wasn't that no one knew. It was very, very obvious. People complained at the time. And the Women's Prison Association also noticed this. They were monitoring how women were treated in prisons. And so they sat, spent some time sitting in at the courts to see what happened. And they they. They issued a report on this, which I read, and they said wealthy people were rarely brought in at all. They were just not arrested. And if they were, they were – their cases were either dismissed or they were, you know, issued a fine um, or bail, which they easily paid and left. And so that left only the poor people going to prison. But this was set up as a progressive effort, right, to reform or alleviate the – terrible conditions in Manhattan at Bellevue. Yes, they meant well, but they made a number of mistakes. Like Uh, what? Well, first, they underestimated the size of the populations that they intended to serve. There was just always more poor people than they expected. And they vastly underestimated the cost. Like, for instance, there's talk now of bringing asylums back. And it's not that asylums, as they are envisioned, are a bad idea for some people. But they are so much more expensive than anybody ever imagines. Mm -hmm. So the problem was they were always trying to come up with ways to save money. So one of the things that they did, which was disastrous, was they took people that were convicted of crimes and sent to the workhouse and used them as nurses and attendants in the lunatic asylum. So you can imagine how well that went. All these institutions were run by a group that came to, uh, went by several names, but in the end it was called the Department of Public Charities and Correction, and they issued annual reports every year, and I read every one. And the, the wardens themselves would complain that we are not feeding them enough. We mm-hmm. are essentially starving them. And all of this would come out. There were abuses in every institution, and reporters, investigative reporters would find out about them. Like the most famous one is Nellie Bly. She feigned mental illness in order to get committed to the lunatic asylum. And that was a very dangerous assignment. What I discovered in the course of my research was people were being murdered. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to say routinely, but it wasn't unusual for murders to happen every year. And what I learned reading her research was that she had originally planned when she was committed to go into either the retreat or the lodge. These were two buildings that were part of the lunatic asylum that were notorious as the worst. Lovely names, though. I know. The retreat and the lodge. And there was the pavilion also, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the minute the lunatic asylum went up, within a year it was overcrowded. So they started building these other buildings to house the people. So... They built the retreat, the lodge, and when those were overflowing, they started building these wooden buildings along the river called pavilions. But those were really nothing more than wooden shanties, very dangerous. So she had originally planned, Nellie Bly had originally planned to be housed in the retreat or the lodge. When she was sent there, she was sent actually to one of the buildings that was the nicest, safest part of the lunatic asylum. And if you read her reports, it's horrifying. You know, it was just as, it was very dangerous. And she decided that if it's so bad here, there's no way that I'm going to go into the retreat of the lodge. So she changed her mind and she stayed where she was. So, I mean, it's interesting because it sounds like this was sort of rigged for failure from the get-go in that the institution that was charged with dealing with these 
various services on Blackwell Island were the Department of Charity and Corrections. That Those two things were combined. That was a, a terrible problem. I'm sure that this association was all, always there to some degree, but putting those two groups together really cemented this idea in everyone's mind that poor people, criminals, and those suffering from mental disorders are essentially, to one degree or another, the same. And it, it also criminalized poverty, it criminalized mental illness. Like, these are groups to be feared, and we should put them away from us. Mm-hmm. And that association exists to this day. It's unchanged. So you have five different institutions on on Blackwell's Island. Let's go through them one by one. There was the, the Lunatics Asylum, the Workhouse, the Alms House, the Hospital for the Poor, and the Penitentiary. Right. All right, let's start with the, the Lunatic Asylum. What was life like in, in the asylum, day-to-day life for the people who lived there? I got probably my best information from this Episcopal priest who was assigned as a missionary to Blackwell's Island, Reverend William Glennie French. And he also wrote annual reports, which I read every single one. And he was so trusted by the commissioners who ran the island that gave him a key that would open every door in the lunatic asylum. But he lost that key, or that key was taken away from him in 1880 because 1879 was a particularly bad year. I always use the example, one case where they t- there was a pregnant inmate, and they took her, put her in a straitjacket, and then threw her into solitary and just forgot about her. Mm-hmm. And so she subsequently gave birth in a straitjacket, alone, in solitary. Oh, my God. There were murders that year. They would take, like, for instance, the, we, we talked about the retreat in the lodge, and they were used to house the most violent patients mm-hmm. sent to the lunatic asylum. And they would, what they did was they would take a room that was originally meant for one woman and put two women, sometimes three or four, and they would lock them up at night, and they wouldn't let them out again until the morning. So... I found cases where, while they were locked up, one woman would murder another. So one year, a night nurse came on, and she was responsible for everyone in the building. She had three workhouse convicts helping her, and she heard this commotion in one of the rooms, and she ran there, opened the door, and one woman was bashing in the head of another with a chamber pot. So she closed the door, called her doctor, who didn't come for an hour, and even though she begged him to move the woman, the victim, to the hospital. He insisted it wasn't necessary. He bandaged her head and left, and she died. So th- it was a year with just lots of stories like that, which eventually was were leaked. And there was an investigation, a Senate investigation, and they issued a 900-page report, which I read. And it was just horrifying, story after story after story. And Reverend French was subpoenaed to testify, and he shows up, and he said, I would love to testify, I want to testify, but I got this telegram last night, and it was from his superior telling him if he testified at this committee, he was in danger of losing losing his position. So the senator said, interesting. So they subpoenaed his superior, and I have a section in the book of the exchange between the senators and this priest asking him, why would Reverend French lose his job to testify to the abuses in this asylum? Isn't this the Christian thing to do? And when I read it, at first I was like, 
just as, you know, outraged as the senators. But when I listened to what he was saying, I was reading between the lines. And what was going on was they were only on the island at the invitation of the commissioners Mm -hmm. who could take away their invitation at any time. And they felt, he felt, well, we can't help them if we're not there. If he testifies, we're going to get kicked off the island. So he was in a no-win position. But French did end up testifying, but after all this research, 900 pages, they didn't make a single recommendation for change. They talked to doctors, nurses, former doctors, former nurses, didn't speak to a single patient. So you you end the book in 1895, but Blackwell Island wasn't sort of formally, these institutions were not formally shut down until 1936. Well, the Book ends in 1895, and one by one after that, the institutions were either shut down Mm -hmm. or moved off the island. The state took over the care of the mentally ill. The city bought Rikers Island, although they didn't start building the penitentiary and the workhouse until the 1930s. The people who were in the almshouse were moved off to Staten Island, The hospitals, some of them stayed, but the main hospital, City Hospital, also known as Charity Hospital, was moved to Queens. So really the only group left were the people in the penitentiary and the workhouse. And they were only moved out when LaGuardia ordered a raid. This is the mayor of New York at the time, Fiorello LaGuardia. Yes. And the person who conducted the raid found corruption. Essentially, it was being run by gangs Mm -hmm. and not by the Department of Correction. So they raised those buildings and moved them to Rikers Island. So that happens in, in 1936. How does it become Roosevelt Island as it is today? And are there any traces that you can find of, of its sort of former incarnation if you go to visit Roosevelt Island now? Except for a few hospitals, the island was largely abandoned by the 1950s. And in the 1960s, it was re-envisioned as a place for mixed-income housing and diversity, and they started building apartment buildings, affordable housing, and it became the Roosevelt Island that we know today. And unfortunately, it's still so frustrating to me, there's very little left of what it once was. On the southern end of the island, there is the smallpox hospital. Mm -hmm. That was originally a hospital for contagious diseases. That was moved to North Brother Island, and it became a school for nurses. So that's still there, crumbling but stabilized. The house that housed the Blackwell family is still there. There's a lighthouse at the northern end of the island where they used to hang people. That's still there. And probably the more interesting piece of the island that still remains is the Octagon, and that was a part of the Lunatic Asylum. When it was raised, that was the one piece that remained, and it is now part of a luxury housing complex. That sounds like uh, New York City today. (laughs) It's such a Dickensian story. I want to end with Charles Dickens himself. He visited the island. What did he have to say when he went there in the 19th century? That's so sad to me because they, they really made an effort to do a good job. Before the Lunatic Asylum was built, they went down to Philadelphia to visit an asylum that was built by Quakers and built on something uh, called moral treatment, which is a very revolutionary idea at the time. 
which basically said instead of throwing them in prison, doing bloodletting and all the other barbaric forms of treatment that they were doing, why don't we treat them with compassion Mm -hmm. and house them in a nice room, feed them well, give them things to do and and entertainments. And perhaps if we treat them with compassion, they'll respond better, which they did. So that was the idea that they went in there with. They built this asylum thinking we're going to do, we're going to build this model institution that's going to be a beacon of hope to all the world. And Dickens, when he wrote these words, describing it as a place of naked ugliness and horror, that was only three years after it was built. No surprise then that the book is called Damnation Island. Is that what people called it at the time? No, we just thought it was an accurate description of the island. An apt description. Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York by Stacey Horn. Stacey, thank you so much for being here. I had a great time. Thank you. Alexander Alter joins us now with some grim news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexander. Sorry to be such a downer every week. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there were two interesting articles published this week that both kind of called attention to the fact that literary fiction sales are not doing so well. Um, Not what they once were. Not what they once were. And this is something that publishers will say privately to you and authors even will say, you know, five years ago I would sell X number of copies and it's way down. And it's sort of interesting. I mean, there are a number of reasons for it. Of course, I think technology has eaten into everyone's book sales, but there's also the robust kind of news cycle and people turning to nonfiction. Anyway, the pieces that I thought did a good job of calling attention to this in different ways, one was an excellent profile of Jonathan Franzen that's in the Times Magazine this weekend by Taffy Brodeser-Ackner. And it's a, it's a lovely piece that sort of ref, Franzen is reflecting on his relationship with his fans, with technology, with the way people relate to him and his books. But it has these pretty interesting and telling sales figures. So he has seen his sales figures decrease dramatically. The corrections, which came out in 2001 and really put him on the map and, of course, you know, had a, a bit of an Oprah bump, which was controversial at the time, that novel sold 1.6 million copies. His next novel, Freedom, which also did incredibly well, came out in 2010 and sold 1.15 million copies. But his 2015 novel, Purity, which was extremely well-reviewed and I think very timely in its themes, only sold around 250,000 copies. So you can really see his market share shrinking. And there's a question of whether, you know, that is particular to his kind of sales trajectory or if it reflects something broader. But if you do look at the overall picture, for sales figures, for fiction. They have certainly gone down. And this was noted in a good piece in The New Republic, which was written by Alex Shepard. He pointed out these Association of American Publishers figures that were reported last year. And it showed that adult fiction sales fell 7.8% in 2016 compared to the year before. And if you look at how far they have fallen since 2012, it's 23% which is pretty crazy. But things are better in fiction than they are in real life. Why? This is confusing to me. I would think at a moment like we're in, people would be turning to fiction to sort of either escape or even process things that are happening. But it seems like, you know, people are not reading as much fiction as they used to. Another piece that I thought was, was pretty interesting was in The Guardian, and that was looking at author earnings. The Guardian reported that there was a recent study by the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society in the U.K., It came out and it showed that professional writers' income 
has fallen by 42% since 2005. And there are a number of best-selling British authors who are sort of taking this up as a cause, including Philip Pullman and Sally Gardner, saying that publishers should compensate authors more. They should share, you know, profits with them, increase advances. And, and they say that this is a dire situation for literary culture in the UK because they claim that it's threatening the diversity and quality of literary culture. If only the biggest authors are sort of making a living off of it, it does make it harder for for new writers to kind of get their footing and, and make a career of it. So. Right. Listeners, I've spoken to Alexandra about this. She has <laughs> promised that she will come back next week something with, good. with something good to say, because this is very grim indeed. Just be glad I didn't bring up Barnes & Noble's earning report. Let's not talk about that. All right, Alexandra, thanks so much for thanks being for here. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, we have our critics, Pearl Sagel, Dwight Garner, and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. All right. So, Dwight, let's start with you because you did something fun in addition to reviewing this week. Let's start with the fun part. Reviewing yeah, well, is fun. <laughs> <laughs> reviewing is fun. No, a few months ago, I, I went to England and Scotland for a week or so. And one of the things I did was go to this little place called Wigtown, Scotland. And, and Wigtown is Scotland's official book city, the way Hayon Wai is in England. And there's something really interesting there, which is, I mean, there's maybe 10 or 12 bookstores or 15 in town. But one of them on Airbnb, you can you can literally rent a bookstore in the apartment above it and live there for a week or two and run the bookstore. They give you the keys. They give you a little cash box. They give you a notepad to write down what people have purchased so they can replenish the stock. You can redecorate. You can invite people to speak if you want. It's yours. You can do whatever. And I can only do it for a day because they're booked forever and ever and ever. So I wedged my way in. I just had a great time. I mean, as I, as I say in my piece, I really miss working in bookstores. You know, just you just learn so much all day. Have you guys worked in a bookstore, Paul or Jen? <laughs> no, I, I applied to work in a bookstore when I was a teenager. You didn't and I get was the rejected. job? <laughs> yes. Pamela, oh we, I remember it very, up here? I remember the bookstore name, which I will not say. But. Redacted. You won't tell us? Well, I mean, it's. I think it still exists in Toronto. It's. it's They're going to feel bad. Why don't well, you out? It was Book City. Pamela, book I think City, we both City. talked about and, and how. who has heard of Book City since then? <laughs> exactly. I know. Where are they now? We both worked in those mall bookstores of yonder past. Yeah, I loved it. I worked at B. Dalton. I was a, a low-level employee. I was not allowed to make those beautiful spiral stacks, you yep. know, that they did. I did, wasn't allowed to do that either. But you I worked in Walden, uh, Walden Books and Walden B. Dalton, so I got the double whammy. Oh, really? Um, what was your employee discount at B. Dalton? Because mine was like 5%. I don't remember. My favorite part, though, was when they would strip the covers off the mass market paperbacks to throw them away and they, you would send the, the cover back to publishers to show that you know you did actually ruin the book but then we could take the ruined books but home. But so there were no good books though in the in the not In my memory there batch. were. I'm sure they were crap. I mean they were great <laughs> crap but I, I thought wow what a bonus. So what was it like being back? Did you fall back into your old book selling ways? I, yeah, I, you know, I was only there for you a day. You just started stripping books. Uh, I really. <laughs> but you know this little town we, I, I can't recommend this place enough. The town reminded me of the Savannah Georgia of John Barron's novel Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I mean it's just crazy characters. This shaggy haired bookseller kept me all up all night drinking one night. This local guy who every Saturday night comes and plays every Tom Jones song. This is not in my piece. On the jukebox and karaoke's to them all. Like this this geezer comes in and does all these Tom Jones songs. And then people brought me uh, shortbread. People just, these characters start coming out of the woods. And it's just a great little town. I mean, I, I recommend doing it because, not just to work in a bookstore, because you get this sort of entire experience of this little village. Did you talk about the fact that you were a critic? And did they have thoughts about, like, the times or book criticism in general? 
Not really. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of these. It's kind you of a undercover. Sweet, it's a slightly. I was undercover. It, actually, I thought I wrote in my piece. I thought people would mark me out as American immediately when they mm-hmm. walked in, but no one did. And I realized how shopkeepers are treated too. No one gives a damn about you if you're behind a counter. <laughs> you know what I mean? People just. I mean, I'm sure I do it too. You walk in. Many people don't even say hello. It's just yeah. like you know, might as well give you the bird the way they walk by. Yeah. You know, well, I think and, people um, feel self conscious in 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 a, in a store in general, and and there's something very you know about a bookstore where you're, yeah, you're getting in the your zone. sort of this like you're forced the zone intimacy. Too. You're sort of like yeah. getting ready to browse and dream and read, and it's this. And you don't want I, people yeah. looking over your shoulder. I spent the day just picking up books for myself to bring home. Hmm. So <laughs> sad, it's like the true. Ignatius Riley of the exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I recommend trying to get yourself into the bookstore is called the Open Book. It's in Wigtown, Scotland, and they're booked through 2021. And there's a waiting list wow. after that, but it's on Airbnb. You can look oh. it up. Theoretically, we could all go to Wigtown. We finally right. do it together as a book review project. That's right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you also reviewed something, and actually it, it now it sounds kind of vaguely related. Well, I'll make right? this quick. Uh, Deborah Levy, it's funny. About two years ago, it seems like every person I know, all my close friends, most of them women, one or two men, were reading Deborah Levy all of a sudden. She had these two novels, Hot Milk and Swimming Home. Everyone was trading them around. And there's this great Jean Genet quote. I think Proust has a similar quote saying they can't stand having other people make love without them. I feel that way about reading. Like someone's mm-hmm. bunch of people reading books. I'm like, I want in. Like, what, what the hell is this book everyone's loving? And so I was really excited that she has a new memoir out called Help Me Out Here, The, the Cost, Cost of, of Living. Living. And so it gave me a reason to go back and read her last four books. And they're just excellent. I mean, She's very prolific, isn't she? She's prolific. Well, she has been. You're right, especially lately. But she has this, this crisp, cool, really intelligent, sort of philosophical, odd tone that reminds me a bit of Rachel Cusk. She should be spoken of alongside Ali Smith and Rachel Cusk for sure. I don't think she's quite gotten her due, although she's gotten some great reviews in the States. I don't think she's quite popped loose in the way the other women have. I think she's a big deal, and she's fun. Also fun, Carl. Yes. <laughs> a very joyful book about death. And I'm not being facetious. <laughs> so the book I reviewed is Advice for Future Corpses by Sally Tisdale, which I picked up on the strength of its title alone. And then I was delighted to see that it was by Sally Tisdale, who I admire. She is, right now she's a palliative nurse, but she's worked as an oncology nurse. She used to work in an abortion clinic. She's also a Zen Buddhist. And she's written this book that is, it's a very practical guide to what it's like to die and what it's like to look after somebody who is dying. And when I say it's practical, she talks about what the skin of a dying person feels like. She talks about what it feels like to turn a dying person. She talks about... If you are the person who is dying, what breathing might feel like and ways that you can breathe easier. And as I was reading this, you know, and I and Pamela, you and I have talked about this a lot, being, you know, sort of, you know, inclined towards grimmer books. Yes. And I read a lot of books about death and I think about death and I, you know, worked as a hospice volunteer. So it's just something that I have thought about a lot. And there's so many books about death right now. There's this flourishing of the literature of the dying and death. And and there's for me, it's felt like a kind of sameness to them, you know, um, Certain. Yeah, there's a great line in your review um, about, like, wh- why must we all die in the, the same, same way? way. Mm. Well, don't we do it the way that we do everything individually? And and um, I just wanted to read something different, and I didn't want to read something necessarily heroic or something about something even abstract. I think I, I really wanted something that took me to this, helped me understand this particular stage of our lives in a way that felt different. And, and, and this book is it. It's so, it's, it's so, it's poetic because it's so specific. And... Part of what she wants everybody to do is to is to think about 
death a little bit more as you're walking the dog, as you're washing dishes, and just become become friends in a way with your own anxieties and become friends with the way and the fact that this is something ubiquitous and and to just get some information about what it happen, about how it happens and what happens. And in the course of reading this, I had a, a feeling that I've I've never had when I've been you know reading a book about death or being with people that are dying is I actually felt curious, you know, like mm-hmm. she actually makes you think about what the body does and she actually makes you think about um, what it's like to shuck off the body. And and I, I'd never had that feeling of like, oh, you know, it may be lots of things, but it might also even be interesting. And that felt <laughs> very new to me. Right. There was that Sherwin Newland book yes, yeah. um, about 30 years ago now, yeah. How We Die, yeah. that I think Which probably looked at it from a more of a medical Absolutely. And I think I think the thing with Tisdale, though, that I mean, it, it, it's it is it is, you know, she has there's a medical component, but so much of it also just because she is who she is and she's a Zen Buddhist and she's a reader and she's a writer and she's thought so much about care. It does go off in these sort of philosophical directions that are just lovely. Yeah, it's a do, beautiful book. Do, does she tell much of her own story? I mean, how, how old is Sally now? I've followed her work I for know. a I long maybe. time. Is she writing about her own aging, or is she pretty much just still taking care of she, others? A little bit. No, she, I think she talks more about she's, – she's very funny because she talks about – she's like, am I actually just, you know, doing this whole Buddhist practice and meditation and taking care of dying people because I think it's going to make it easier for me? You know, so she's she's not precious about it. She, a little bit. She talks a little bit about her experience, but I think mostly about the deaths she's experienced and what that feels like and and the fact that you can know a lot about death and you can think about it, and it's in our nature to – resist it and it's in our nature to be anxious about it and it's okay to sit with that and to also learn about it and try to become as comfortable with it as you can so I want to read yeah. this book I, I liked it a lot I, it made me um, it made me laugh a lot and it, it it's it's great I highly recommend it I got a little emotional <laughs> <laughs> Jen Jen wow. switching topics what did you review <laughs> so I wanted actually to talk about about a book that I reviewed last week and um, last week I did a review of two books one was this book, Whitewalling, by the art critic Aruna D'Souza, and the other was Olden Art School by Nell Painter, or Nell Irvin Painter, who's probably best known for her history books, especially the history of white people. And this is a book that she wrote about her experience of retiring from Princeton University, where she had a very nice job as a historian, and essentially going back to school to study arts. So she studied first at Rutgers at the Mason Gross School of Arts there. And then she decided to pursue an MFA at RISD or the Rhode Island School of Design. So in any case, I, you know, it was just such an interesting book because the book itself, you sort of see how she herself changes as a person and also starts to understand who she is as an artist. Because right at the beginning, you know, she really makes clear that even though she had always been interested in art, she had studied a little bit when she was an undergraduate student, that she really, as a historian, had learned to think about the world in a very particular way and that it actually really didn't necessarily serve her that well as an artist, that she found it hard to sort of open up to new ways of thinking and eventually she does and there's just something really sort of inspiring and moving about this book and also while this is going on she's finishing her book the history of white people which is a very big book for her and you know that process is dragging on and also her two you know her parents are in their 90s and her mother is dying her father has depression they're living on the west coast she's trying to negotiate what's happening with them 
you know, she, she's very candid about her own feelings about, you know, she wants to be selfish for a moment and really sort of focus on what she wants to do. And her parents make that really hard for her and how she deals with it and the anger she feels. I mean, it's a, it's a really, I think, great book that sort of covers the whole range of emotion and experience. Her parents make it hard for her in college, like just like probably. Right. <laughs> right. Although, you know, her mother, her mother really is is dying when she's, I think, in her last year of Mason Gross. And that's exactly the time when Painter decides that she wants to do graduate school. And that's a whole process to apply to graduate school. And also when you're graduating art school, you have to do these huge assignments. I mean, she she's got a lot going on and she's aware of the fact eventually that a lot of this is her attempt to sort of displace whatever feelings of anxiety that she's having. But but yeah, the book is is just, yeah, it's the candidness of the book that I really, I really enjoyed. Right. I'm, I'm sensing like a common theme actually here among <laughs> the, the books that you all all reviewed. It's yeah. sort of the 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 kind of these slim personal accounts. Books of June. Books of June. But I think right. it's also like there's something that I I mean, it's just, it's also, I think, for me, hearing from older women in this way that feels really important and really interesting. And they're just doing stuff and telling, sometimes it feels very personal to me as a younger woman, you know, but it just feels exhilarating to just like have people light the way for you. And I feel like I just feel lucky as a reader. And who doesn't love a slim book in the summer? (laughs) Yeah. Although I will say that Painter's book is not. That slim. It's not, and you reviewed two at once, so you, you <laughs> the took other one book, for the team. White white walling is very, very slim, so that's very if quick. If you're looking for ultra yeah. slim, you go with the other one. All yeah. right, thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Pamela. You. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.